0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the nitty-gritty realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the content of our weekly roundup post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our guide for the Christian with a cosmopolitan spirit and a grace-infused passion for everyday life, to what to pay attention to out in the world of the interwebs. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Sarah Condon, a regular co-host, and sitting in for David Zoll will be Mockingbird staff person, contributor Ethan Richardson. But first, I'm going to talk with a friend and colleague from Wheaton College, Matt Milner, who is a professor of art history, and he's going to talk to us about art and our experience Of Holy Week. Welcome to the Mockingcast for the first time ever. Matt Milner, Dr. Matt Milner, who teaches art history at Wheaton College in the heartland of America and evangelicalism. Happy Maundy Thursday, Matt. Likewise.
1: Likewise, Scott. Delighted to be a part of this. I've been enjoying this podcast for a while.
0: Can you tell me what Maundy means? Because I say ma- Maundy, I, thought, I think it means holy.
1: I think it comes from the mandate to love one another that Jesus issues at that time. I, I would have to check that, but that, that's in my memory right now is the, the background to that. Or they couldn't figure it out if it was Monday or Thursday, so they kind of blended it Maundy
0: Thursday. No. I think it goes back to mandate from the ridiculous to the sublime, or in that sense, the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> so Matt, I want to have you on because we're in a time, uh, of the Christian calendar that people are in church a lot. A lot of their churches have pictures of Jesus, some kind of pop culture, you know, uh, headshots of Jesus, like the Protestant Jesus, mm-hmm. in the side profile, some icons and stations of the cross, but somehow like, as visual and sensory people, um, oftentimes our senses are, you know, key to how we experience uh, the commemoration of the week that changed the world. So, can I tell the story about um, how I
1: encountered Mockingbird? Absolutely, you can. Yeah, I would it, love for you to tell that story. It, yeah, because we we just I, I wrote it up to a certain extent. We, we've got this this new book that came out um, the image in an image driven age, um, that we, that celebrated a conference that we had here. And in it, I was able to tell the story a little bit more detail, but it's just, it's so serendipitous because I, I think I had heard of Mockingbird. I, I, actually, um, this, the, this conference I stepped into, I, I didn't realize until afterwards that it was a Mockingbird conference, but this is what happened is I'm going into New York and I had learned about Andy Warhol, who's another one of these repentant artists who who turns to the Last Supper at the end of his career and takes all the masks off and just says, mm. here, I'm, I'm interested in this. And some people interpret it as ironically, um, and I don't know, I don't think it is. I've been to those exhibitions, and I think there's more to it than that. But nevertheless, he definitely has his bad boy phase, and one of those is when he processed with a cross into... The deconsecrated church of the Holy Communion in midtown Manhattan that became the Limelight Nightclub. So it was this ironic procession. Now, I have a hard time forgiving Andy Warhol for that. It's pretty awful because um, the, the church of the Holy Communion was in a really important place. They, they gave up the box pews um, so that it was more democratic. They, uh, the first convention of black Episcopal clergymen met there. They had women in leadership early on. Extraordinary place for the preaching of the gospel. Um, going back to the nineteenth century and, and social reform as well. But again, they had lost that the, the salt had lost its savor and so it became the famous nightclub um in the nineteen eighties where all the cocaine trade in New York pumped through limelight and there are documentaries about it because everyone says, Oh, it was such an epic club, you should have been there. It's like Studio 54, right? Everyone wants to wants to have been a part of that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but so anyway, I was going to this. I wanted to see the church. I'd always wanted to visit it. And when I went there, I it, it had become a mini mall. And it was in the process of becoming a mini mall. And I walk and I was just, I was genuinely mortified. Because it's like, okay, you can't keep up the kind of the, the cocaine nightlife forever, but you certainly can be a consumerist forever. And I'm walking in and I see like the true religion t-shirt. I see the, um, the, the, they're advertising a true slice of heaven that is not the Eucharist, but the pizza shop they had in there. They had the trendy unisex bathrooms. They had um, in the place where Christ the King's stained glass window was, was menswear, and the image of faith in the stained glass window was paired with um, these Saks Fifth Avenue ads. And then the the clothing of the Good Samaritan was being used, that is, in the stained glass window, was being used to sell clothing to relatively rich people. And it was just, it was really depressing to walk through that and to see this total capitulation of a once vibrant beacon of the gospel Mm. to this consumerist culture that dominates it even today. Now, thankfully, it's just the shoe store because they couldn't keep up the mini mall parade for a while. (laughs) But I just visited it recently. But anyway, so I'm kind of wandering depressed after that being like, I cannot believe this. Like, this happened on my watch and our watch. It's like, what gracious, what is going on? And I literally wandered into a church, the Church of St. George, if I'm getting my name right, which is not too far from it. And I, I this kid, is the, kid the you director, not. The rector is my friend Jacob yes, Smith. Yes, I kid you not. I, I, I go into that church because I'm still, I, I'm there to, to take photographs of churches and understand 19th century church architecture. And I go in. And I just, clearly, there's some, it was beautiful, and clearly there was something happening in there. And so I kind of wander in, and this just packed out. And I'm like, what is this, some kind of, you know, business seminar? Like, why would a church be so filled with people on on a weekend? And I just walked to the back, and I just heard the gospel. It was Michael Horton who was giving a, a conference presentation on grace, because, of course, that's his specialty, the great Calvin Scholar Horton. And it was so extraordinary to see a vibrancy there. And I realized since, of course, that there that, that was part of a merger, which is why the Church of the Holy Communion no longer had, um, became a church. It was more complicated than I had thought of just this simple expiration. But it was, it was the one thing that kept me from getting um, too down as a result of that. And so it was my first encounter with Mockingbird, this realization that even though we may have um, literally um, given up our Church to the consumerist impulse. At the same time, there's been this unexpected renewal, kind of like right out of the Book of Isaiah, right? Just when things are at their worst, there are these sprigs that shoot forth in the desert of Protestantism, and I was deeply encouraged by that. So I'm, I'm grateful for Mockingbird.
0: Well, we're grateful for your work. You gave a talk recently in, Wheaton, in the Wheaton Tower, like a TED talk, but a Tower talk, called Artists Gone Mild. I'm talking all about uh, how grace and spiritual healing has shaped some of the great artists in art history.
1: Yeah. And it's been one of their, I mean, it's one of the things that I was never told, because you had this romantic, that is capital R, the 19th century movement view of the artist who extracts him or herself from society, breaks the rules. And I found that, in fact, often quite the opposite is the case. I um, refer to the book Crisis of Doubt, a delightful book by my colleague Timothy Larson, who says that, you know, we thought that in the Victorian age, everyone had a crisis of faith and gave up Christianity. Well, he did the hard research and showed that precisely the opposite was the norm. People had crises of faith and then had crises of doubt and turned back. They were free thinkers for a while. They went back to the Christian faith. It's much more amply documented, that phenomenon. And as I looked at the history of art, the same thing. All these famous artists, you'd think they'd be rule breakers extracting themselves from society, but often cases they are poster boys for repentance, for having moved in a certain direction and then um, under the burden of their accomplishments in some senses, returning in the classic Christian sense with tears to the faith that they had departed from.
0: So give me your top three of those, you know, the top three artists. Give me a little bit of their story and give me kind of the works of art that might illustrate it a little bit. You know, number one, I mean, we could, I'll I'll build up maybe because I mean. Yeah, let's start with number three, like Casey Kasem's Countdown. Number three in the artist's (laughs) Countdown. Here it is. And I have a letter from a truck driver who's missing his sweetheart and he's sending out (laughs) a Donatello piece.
1: I guess number three, I'd say uh, Salvador Dali. We put him up there as, Okay,
0: Dali, so we're starting with modern, who is, uh, who yeah. is 20th century. Right. And in your talk, you mentioned that he was actually kind of part of the insider avant-garde and booted out because he wasn't radical enough.
1: Right. André Breton didn't like him very much um, because he, his politics were not as leftist as Breton would have wanted. And Dali... But nevertheless, maybe there's some jealousy there. Dali is gaining a lot of fame as kind of the the generator of surrealist imagery that everyone's beginning to notice. Think of the melted clock. And he ends his autobiography by saying, I, you know, I'm going to die without faith. You know, this is it. Um, of course, he's, he's one of these third-person autobiography guys. He talks about the great Dali in his own words. Um, and he, he concludes, and in, in the way I describe it is that most Dali scholarship concluded with that as well for a long time, that Autobiography is finished in 1942. The Secret Life of Salvador Dali, if I'm getting my date right, and then after that he basically. Well, has, I don't know. You
0: could make it up for me. I can make I mean, it I'm up a cultural exactly. philistine <laughs> But then after that, you know, he, Chesterton. Chesterton wrote a biography of Aquinas, and he got the birthday wrong. I think, and the publisher said, sent the manuscript, but the birthday is wrong. And Chesterton writes back, and I think like nobody cares about that. <laughs> you know.
1: Etienne Gilson, so. the great Thomas, said that G.K. Chesterton's book on Aquinas was the best thing he had read.
0: And for a, for a serious it, Thomas yeah, to it, say that, is staggering. Yeah, a lot of Aquinas scholars say that. So. And, and so
1: T.S. A... Eliot said the same thing about Chesterton's book on Dickens, his introductory to, introduction to Dickens. I mean, the fact that, you know, Eliot would say that. Pretty astonishing guy. So you're right. Dates are not as important as possible. So Dali... The the spirit of his life is what matters. And so after this autobiography, he he returns to Christianity. He says, once I was an atheist, now I am a mystic. He goes on lecture tours. The thing for him that did it was the dropping of the atomic bomb. It just shattered his life. And he has his return, dramatic return to Catholicism. Now, I like to point out, you know, he's professionally weird. One way to describe Dali, and so if you you know research his life, you're going to find some really crazy antics post conversion that kind of make people scratch their heads. It's it's kind of like the explosion of of mystical faith in a cathedral. The title of one of his paintings. It's a really messy conversion, but nevertheless, um, he he does have a dramatic return. He illustrates Dante. He finds a place for all that surrealist imagery that he was trudging up from the subconscious, and that place is on the cross. These distorted forms they can be crucified with Christ. And then he basically reconceives all of Christian iconography in his later career. It's a pretty astonishing turn. And so that would be, that'd be number three. I guess number two, um, maybe to stick in the modern, because uh, it would be... Well, no, number two would have to say Botticelli. Maybe the most picture-perfect case of somebody who has extraordinary artistic performance in the 1400s and the Renaissance. He's creating... The famous Venus. He's um, the beautiful, reconceiving the pagan allegories for Quattrocento aristocrats and being paid handsomely for it. He's learned from his teacher, Filippo Lippi, who was a wild man himself, and he is even taking that tradition even further. And then he starts to hear the preaching of the great Savonarola, and this cuts him to the quick. And, I mean, Savonarola gets a bad rap, but he actually had a profound appreciation for beauty. He used the beauty of paintings as an allegory sometimes for um, experiencing God. But nevertheless, he saw the wayward trajectory of Florence at this time and lit the bonfire of the vanities. And famously, Botticelli very well may have placed some of his paintings in that bonfire as, some, as an act of repentance. But most importantly, he doesn't stop painting. His most interesting stage of his career comes after that repentance as he...
0: Yeah, you mentioned in your talk that there's a painting. Is it a self-port where you see Botticelli running away from... Yeah, that that's my fanciful interpretation of that.
1: Um, we don't know quite who painted that image of Savonarola himself getting burned in the bonfire of the vanities, but I'm imaginatively thinking of the little boy, kind of the, the young man running away, kind of like Mark at the foot of the cross running away. To his studio, in this case, Botticelli, who knew Savonarola, who is grieved by this public execution that happens, because of course Savonarola took things a little too far when he gained control of Florence. Um, but he, but he mourns the death of this person who meant so much to him. He gets really interested in the end times. He thinks the world's going to end in fifteen hundred. But he actually experiences this profound. Spirituality, and most importantly, the iconographical theme that emerges for these artists, maybe the one that can stitch these repentant artists together, especially in the Renaissance, is the deposition, which we'll, we'll celebrate on, well, celebrate, you don't really celebrate that, do you? On Saturday, um, that commemorate. is... Commemorate. Uh, commemorate, exactly. Or, um, in some sense, re-experience, if you have a liturgical, realist perspective. And that is um, the, the descent of Christ from the cross. And this is the theme that, they, that artists like Titian, the Botticelli, Michelangelo, van der Weyden in the North, all, they all turn back to it because it's the end of all possible ambition. It is. It's, I mean, even the work of the cross is done. <laughs> the anti-work of the cross, the end of all human striving, there's even something after that, and that is just to hold the dead body of Christ. These artists who are driven by accomplishment and the need to succeed the same way we are in our society, this, this cult of performance, they seem to be drawn to this image of the, the expired Jesus. But art historians until recently really didn't often hear that message because we wanted to send the, out the, the signal of create, create, create beautiful things. And that's important. But in some senses, these best artists are saying, you know what, that's, that's a, a dead end. Because accomplishment will weary you. And so Botticelli, and then of course, what's most interestingly, Michelangelo, the, the person who is lifted up as, as the most prominent, these overachiever, the divine. And this is our first Ninja Turtle in your... That's in right. Your exactly. This but, is it. I mean. Botticelli didn't, didn't get in. I have a lot of quibbles. I think that uh, we should have gotten a Northern Renaissance in with the, with the Ninja Turtles. We could
0: have, we could have put in... Um, Other, but never they just focused on these four Italians. Well, before I watched your TED talk, I thought Botticelli was something you said. I I wanted al dente, you know, with a nice bolognese sauce. I mean, I thought it was (laughs) pasta. Well, now you know. Now I know. Aesthetic as well as gustatorial pleasure can now
1: be experienced. Gustatorial, absolutely. So our number one is Michelangelo. Yeah. Well, this is this is the research that has unfolded that. Drives home the message of grace in a way that I would never have expected, because there was a campaign to suppress certain facts about Michelangelo's life that started even while he was still alive. But what recent art historians have pointed out is that, frankly, uh, Michelangelo is a—he's a closet Um, Protestant—and I. To put it that way sounds a little bit polemical. It's like, of course, you know, the guy at Wheaton College would say that. But, you know, <laughs> but, but this is not, I mean, so it's was Aquinas, really
0: So is, you know, like, yeah, they're all funny. Yeah,
1: know, but and, and maybe, Protestant, that's why maybe Protestant is too strong of a word. Um, he's, he's attracted to the Reformist party in Italy known as the Spirituali that are the spiritual ones that themselves are deeply informed by Protestant ideas that are coming to them, that are collected in a book called The Benefits of Christ that's still, in you can get it today. Um, but it, um, this, this book communicates the message of grace. And this is an irresistible word for a, an artist like Michelangelo who's not doing a couple of pieces of art because he likes to paint it. So he's being conscripted, drafted. He complains about this. I, you told me to do this. You didn't give me a choice. So basically, it's a slave laborer. It's, it's like a, a, you know, a college basketball player who just is always, I mean, just being forced into this all the time. Yes, they have the talent. They enjoy it. But they're just, they, they're, the, the performance pressure is so extraordinary. And he loves the fame. Don't get me wrong. But he's describing this this irres- I mean, he he has to work, and he didn't even like to paint. They're like, no, you know what? You're going to paint for me. You're going to do the Sistine Chapel. I, trust me, I know you can do it. And they were right. They we're glad that he was forced into it. But Michelangelo is drawn to this message of grace, so he gets involved with these people, the spirituality. His we could call his spiritual director. I think is term for it. Vittoria Colonna. He she was long interpreted as his girlfriend because we just want this story of love and um, the agony and the ecstasy. The movie and the novel by uh, I mean Irving gives you this sense of he must have been in this passionate affair with this woman. That's not what was going on. We have the letters. She's talking to him about Grace alone. And what's truly extraordinary is that this guy, who's all of his pain. I mean, he loved. He needed money, and he was he was very. He was a little bit greedy. I mean, he was really obsessed with funds in his life. And he would give her drawings for free to illustrate that the grace of God cannot be bought. And we have a smoking gun and that we have, a, we have a letter where he clearly enunciates that. I want you to have this image of, again, the deposition, the end of all works of Christ dying from the cross. And do not give me a cent for it because I want you to have this. He's in the middle of this self-portrait, in this deposition, and when we have reason to believe that when he famously attacks his own image, Michelangelo was an iconoclast. He destroyed his own work. He attacks it, possibly out of this rage and frustration, because his friends connected to this circle of the message of grace were being imprisoned, and he thought he was next. And so he begins to cover his own tracks, and he literally destroys his own work. And this is the story that Vasari tells for different reasons, but there's, he says because there's a bad vein in the marble, but actually there's perfect marble. The reason he very well attacked it might have been at this point of frustration. And now he's much later in life, and he's realizing that he's not going to be able to continue to pursue these spiritual currents with his friends. But what's so amazing is that I think maybe the best piece of work he ever did and that's a big statement, I know, but is the, is the rondanini Pietà, which is, in some senses, the opposite of his earlier Pietà, where you have this youthful Mary who's holding her, everyone looks great, even though, you know, he's dead and she's depressed, but they look beautiful. They could be right on the cover of a magazine today. and And he famously chisels his name into the sash when someone doesn't realize that, um, it was he that did it because he's getting his name out there. He's going to accomplish. And at the end, at the end of his life, when he's you know, his late 80s, he does the Rondanini Pieta, where Mary is sidelined. She, again, is put in the back. And it's as if he is holding her, even though she's supposed to be holding him. And, you know, you might say to yourself, you know, how would you depict that? Well, Google image Rondanini Pieta, and you'll see. And it's not, the best thing about it, it's not finished. And of course, no one ever believed it was a Michelangelo because the divine Michelangelo would always have things in, in crystal clear perfection at the end. And it very well may, may be because he, he died in, before he could finish it. But it also might be that he's just like, you know what? I've done enough. One of the reasons I'm drawn to this is that ours, there are many people who have been pointing out that whereas guilt May have been the driving force of the 16th century, which is one of the reasons why grace alone was such an attractive and suppressed force at that time, is that in the weariness of the South, Alan Ehrenberg, you may have heard of this book, A Clinical History or a History of Depression. And what he suggests is that we've gone from guilt to weariness as the primary emblem of what afflicts us. And so he suggests that the dichotomy of the forbidden and the allowed has been replaced with an axis of the possible and impossible. I'm quoting Matthew Crawford's summary of of this book. And with this shift comes a new pathology. The affliction of guilt has given way to weariness, weariness with the vague and unending project of having to become one's fullest self. And we call that depression you just, I mean, it's no longer, you know, what is your experience? It's, are you, are you flexible? You know, what can you do for me? Can you constantly reinvent yourself? Can you, and can you perform, perform, perform? And a lot of us can't. And, or we try to do so, and then we buckle under the pressure of that. And that's why, even for a, a weariness of afflicted culture, as opposed to just a guilt-afflicted one, the message of the lives of these artists communicates us communicates to us just as effectively. Again, I can't emphasize enough that this new vision of Michelangelo is not a sideline view. It is right now the reigning interpretation, and it's been hard won, and it's something we can really appreciate. He, he, He should not loom over us as this guilt of, look how little I've accomplished in my life. He's actually broadcasting at the end of his life that accomplishment had become an idol to me, and do not let accomplishment be an idol for you he seems to be suggesting through the centuries.
0: That's a great witness during Holy Week to remember that uh, our redemption was procured not by uh, overachievement, exactly. but, by, but by the death and God abandoned
1: Right, right.
0: Well, thanks for being with us. Uh, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule. Uh, you know, we'll have you uh, on the podcast again. Hey, thank you, Scott. Thank you. Welcome to one more episode of The Mockingcast. Here I am, Scott Jones, as always, your host, joined by regular co-host Sarah Condon in the lovely state of Texas.
2: Hey, hi.
0: And we have sitting in for the animating force of the zeitgeist, the man behind the curtain, Ethan Richardson. Ooh, I like that. Regular Mockingbird staff person, okay. contributor, and all-around interesting chap.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Interesting. Always good.
0: And let me just say for our listeners, Ethan gave a talk at the Mockingbird Tyler Conference. Was that your first time like giving a talk of that size? Yeah, it was
3: my first time on the big stage.
0: Would not have known it. Not a dry eye in the back row. Probably not in the house at the end, but all I could see was the back
3: row. Everybody. Everyone was just crying because they felt sorry for me. <laughs>
2: That's not true. It was incredible. And I was sitting in the back with all the mockingbird dudes who are all very emotive men and they were all weeping along with me. It was very good. We're
3: a bunch of criers. <laughs> That's
0: right. Sarah wasn't really crying. She just wants <laughs> to join in on it. The... I like how you said, I like how it would have been better if you'd said, who guys who normally don't express their emotions, they were crying. You're like, it sounds like, oh my gosh, but of course, you know, these guys cry like old reruns. Of, oh, like, of, course, of course they, they
2: cry. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> Diaper commercials. Yeah, right. they cried everything. You know,
0: all, yeah. Oh. So, yeah. But anyway, I think it'll be available, right, on uh, both of your talks I thought were excellent. Sarah gave one on the nature of death, and uh, I thought that was excellent. So, uh, both of those, them will be available soon on the website.
3: Sarah, our minister may be stealing those three things people say in their deathbed for our Easter sermon.
2: Oh, cool. That's awesome. Good.
0: Love it. Love it. So, on to the contents of Another Weekend. By the way, before we get into it, somebody did post to the Twitter feed today asking if we were going to do a review of Batman v Superman. So, I'm going to talk to the powers that be and see if I can be tasked with that. And I will go see yeah. today. Do you
3: know anyone who might be good at that?
0: Me, me, <laughs> and I'm, I'm impious. I'll go, I will go and uh, I will go and do it on Good Friday. Uh, I, I don't care. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I care about Jesus and Good Friday, but I also, these things are not mutually exclusive commitments in my mind. So on to another weekend's. We uh, have a lot of things, or several that deal with women and motherhood. So it's good that we have um, a very articulate female. That sounds so sexist when I said articulate
2: that. Articulate female. I've, I'm going to put that on my CV. I, know, I I don't know, but I've said it's just good, <laughs> like I,
0: I don't know. I, I I feel like I'm being patronizing or something, which no, I no, don't it. mean to be. I know. But there's this review that we have here, right, Ethan? This comes from. This is a book, right? a book by Peggy Orenstein.
3: Yes. Yes. It's called, what's the name of the book? Girls Girls and and sex. Girls and sex navigating the complicated new landscape.
0: Isn't the, wasn't the old landscape complicated too?
3: (laughs) I don't know if it's ever not complicated.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Wow. I missed the memo something.
3: Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I feel like, uh, the review, this is the, the review we're talking about is in the New York Times book review um, from this past week. And uh Cindy Leave is the is the reviewer and she's talking about um, Orenstein's uh, kind of venture into this this new landscape of what sex means for young women and um, and mainly what she's getting at is, is the, the idea that um, there is this weird divide between sexual stereotyping and women being sort of craved for male attention, and the language and how that's changed to being more of a, a power struggle. Um, even though in, in college classes, women are uh, taking classes about hegemony and power structures. And, and yet at the same time, they're, they're sending these texts and putting on mini skirts and saying, I just really want to get drunk and make out with someone tonight.
0: Yeah, yeah. She says, actually, that the thrust of the book is, you know, it, it's not whether things are better or worse for g- girls, it's why. At a time when women graduate from college at higher rates than men and are closing the wage gap, Aren't young women more satisfied with their most intimate relationships when so much has changed for girls in the public realm? Arnstein writes, why has not more changed in the private one? So Sarah, yeah. is that true? Is that true in your experience?
2: Oh, I think this is totally true. And for me, I think uh, sex and the single girl uh, should have just an extra chapter about how much this is like the church world, like how, you know, we've we've had women ordained in the Episcopal church since the seventies, you know, most mainline denominations were a little earlier. And while we're going ahead and we're giving women power and that's awesome. And we're running churches like the culture of the church has not caught up to it yet. And women are sort of actively sorting out what it means to lead while leading, which is kind of terrifying. And I just kept thinking about that when I was reading this, like, um, I know it's sort of an odd and probably uh, inappropriate parallel to draw, but I loved the, and thought it was so interesting that girls are having less sex is what they said. Teenage girls are having less sex, but what they are doing is, is primarily sexting. So sending sexy photos and oral sex, which is, is at a base level just to make men happier. I mean, it's like they have more power. They're, you know, they're going to college. They're having less sex by choice and yet they're still sorting out like what it means in the midst of it. It's I was fascinated by this.
0: It's a man's world. I mean, it, it, oh, and totally. I say it sadly, but I mean, Charles Manson had a 26 year old woman that wanted to marry him so she could father his child. He's in life imprisonment as a cult leader, murderer, and still he can get <laughs> dates. I mean, really, what it's it's a guy's world. It really is. I mean, That's sadly. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: So do you feel like this is a pressure cooker kind of thing, like? where you have like these sort of dueling sets of expectations as a professional woman where you like, you're kind of, you know, you're on the career success track and yet you want to be courted in certain ways and certain ways not. And you want to be able to actually not be some kind of cookie cutter template, but choose the things that you want in a, in a relationship. And it just feels like a lot of pressure from a lot of places.
2: It's so complicated because you can't, no one's ever done this before. I mean, that, you know, this is like the thing is like for millennia, we've done it a certain way and, and no one's ever done it like this. And so I, I'm a huge Erica Zhang fan. She wrote that feminist, you know, sexy book in the seventies, fear of flying And I'm a huge fan of hers primarily via her daughter because her daughter is like more conservative and and gets in these great public arguments with her mother. And they did an interview on Alec Baldwin's show on NPR, and they were talking about sort of feminism and how it hasn't played out the way they wanted to. And sexual power for women hasn't played out the way that Erica Zhang's generation expected it to. And her daughter said something like, uh, you can't blow up the atom bomb and then say how you want it to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
2: so it's like this is—I I feel like that's what we're seeing, and it's great. Women have power, but like we're all sorting out the aftermath, right? So,
0: so I just want to go on the record that my wife is a high-powered career woman who makes more money than me and takes me to the office parties and says I'm the trophy wife. So I do, like, so <laughs> I do push-ups, baby. It's why I do push-ups. Yeah. Awesome. It's, um, it's very important. So it's interesting that another piece that's in uh, this week's edition of Another Weekend is about a different kind of anxiety shared by both genders, which is about how young people will choose their religion. Right, Ethan? We have this from, is it from The Atlantic?
3: Yeah, it's from The Atlantic. Uh, It's called uh, How Will Young People Choose Their Religion? And um, I mean, if there's a common thread that holds these two together, uh sex in the single girl and this piece on religion it's it's mainly that there's this anxiety um about any sort of necessary vulnerability in life you know um sex and relationships always involve uh some form of of real nakedness you know like being before another person and weakness and um and the same is true with religious belief, like having to, having to say what you believe or having to sort of lean on something besides uh, yourself, even if you're a secular humanist, uh, that, that that involves some stake in the game. And, and that for a very anxious generation of teens, 20s, 30s, uh, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to, to make that choice. And, um, but what I love so much about this article is that it's really saying that um, a lot of what we've read about with the polls, uh, the Pew findings, that there are more and more religious nuns, you know, N-O-N-E-S.
0: We're not talking Sally Field, the flying
3: kind. No, (laughs) we're not talking about flying nuns. We're talking about uh, zilch. You know, I, I have no religious affiliation. and. Um, what this article says is that's really not true. I mean, people may say that they don't fit a religious category, but, but many uh, millennials go to church, and they would say that they believe in God, um, and they would say that something, some greater understanding of the world around them uh, structures their world.
0: Sarah, do you see this like day to day and parish work playing out? Like, do you find people with stories that are have less inherited religious tradition and more have to become searching religious pilgrims, figuring out what their own tradition and, and practice will be?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're a, gener- a generation where, um, and I think this is true of our parents' generation. They're really the ones that push these limits, but where all the institutions are kind of up for grabs. And so questions get asked about everything. But I I loved this because I think it's very unusual for me to meet someone inside or outside of the church who's my age, who's just an atheist. I mean, I just think that's so, I mean, I really like the number of atheists I've met in their 20s is like less than five, you know? So, um yeah, I mean, I, I I thought this was great. It really unpacked the whole nuns thing that causes so much anxiety in the church every time that number gets rolled out before us.
0: Yeah, I, there's a book that came out a couple years ago called All Things Shining, uh, which is by Dorrance and Kelly. Well, I might have talked about it before, but it's basically, it's called Rereading the Classics in a Secular Age. And it's all about this idea that most people in most cultures have these narratives, whether it's Homer or... You know, Dante. You know, it's some sort of cultural narrative that tells you what life, death, transcendence, romance, gender, work is all about. And in a culture like ours, where the overarching narrative is there's no one governing narrative, at least it tries to say that. It 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 can be a tough thing because traditions really work best not when you choose them like a consumer, but when you feel like they've chosen you. Mm. Uh, This is the kind of you know. the sense of of you know in the Christian tradition grace that it's not something that you conjured up, you know it's it's death and resurrection, you know when you're dead, you can't ask to be raised so that kind of that kind of experience you know it, and I'm not saying that can't happen because people convert in pre and postmodern times, but it, I think it it creates a a more anxious road, probably on the spiritual pilgrimage
3: yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I don't know if this is true for all churches, but uh, certainly at our church here in Virginia, I mean the uh, you know it's it's a growing church, and 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 that may explain this, but it does seem that um, as far as people in their twenties go, it's just not it's not the most common to 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 be a church attender in your twenties and. What tends to happen is that when people get married and and have babies, that that becomes more prevalent in life, and and the desire to go to church is is back. We have so many families getting their babies baptized every Sunday; it's unbelievable. Well, yeah, I
2: which is which so is great. why I think it's really crucial in church world to not make rules around that stuff. Like I remember when we were at a parish in New York uh my husband was it was there was constant weddings constant baptisms and uh, there are, there are a lot of schools of thought in the church where it's like well you have to go through said class or you have to have been a member of the church for this long and i remember my husband's boss was like this is like th- this is what we do like we we just do this stuff for them and like eventually a lot of them come back because They weren't given this, like this whole, this is what you have to do in order for us to offer you the sacrament kind of language. Um, And it makes me always, I always think of the Franciscan monks in the, I guess it was the the 1600s. I don't, I can't give you a date, but there's this beautiful story about them and how they used to walk the street um, and with holy water and baptize uh, street kids. Right. Um, because it was theirs to give away. I mean, that's the thing with church. It's like when we get anxious and we and we have this this gospel of scarcity, we we're on, we're, we're going to lose, you know, like it's not going to work. So, well, I just
0: want to say for the anxious uh, people about relationships, particularly the women that we talked about, um, I met my wife at church. So who knows? Maybe, you know, it's it's it, it, it you might not just find. Deep spirituality, but you might find love on the horizontal plane as well. So, if you ever that's my recommendation
3: for here, i like this.
0: Now, we've also got something in here, Ethan, from Ask Polly.
3: Right? Yeah, yeah. Heather Havrileski, at it again. We actually have two, I guess, that we're going to talk about um, from Havrileski. This one, um, you guys can fill in the gaps, but uh, the Dear Polly question is basically, you know, I'm I'm a college student in my last uh, semester. I've spent a lot of time trying to fix this boyfriend of mine, and all I feel is exhausted, and all I want to do is enjoy my last semester in college, but instead I feel, uh, emotionally drained and I feel completely, um, dead. (laughs) And, and so what do I do? How do I, how do I get past this? And, uh, Polly responds in a very long response by basically saying you can't fix people. And this is an important lesson in life because as soon as you feel as though, um, you are being fixed by a parole officer, the relationship dies.
0: Yeah, I think the only thing, I mean, it's interesting because we can't fix people. Sometimes, though, in real deep love relationships where the love is as close to unconditional as it can get from a human being, we can experience healing, but it's never something that can be conjured up or contrived. It's usually something that happens when we're not looking at the person as a project and the person doesn't feel like a project, you know, they feel like a person that's, you know, the receptor of a deep one way love, which is the opposite of control.
2: It's also the opposite of like pretty much any relationship that happens in college. Right. I mean, like we're all too like into ourselves and what we're going to do next and how we're going to like conquer the world and how we're like and we're like our hottest in college too like it's all downhill after that you know so like you're
0: so self-involved speak for yourself (laughs) sir
2: i was like it was after 22 man but like yeah i don't i don't think we're capable of that kind of healing love for the most part i mean in college i don't know it I, I think that every woman in college would benefit from just having a, a small lecture where they like had to discuss this piece because we get to college and there there is very much a narrative about fixing men that for whatever reason most of us kind of cling to. And college is if nothing else, college is practice for marriage. I mean, it is you your first time to really have these relationships that don't have the guards on them that your parents have placed. And, you know, it's a good time to learn this stuff.
0: I'm actually, I'm reading this book right now called the throwback special where it's some of the reviews have hailed it as the best novel of 2016, but it's about these middle-aged guys who kind of are dealing with their own finitude. But the one guy uh, uh, says that, you know, I tried to sit down. I feel bad about what the toilet seat and I sat down, you know, to go to the bathroom And my dog came in, and he's a beautiful chocolate lab, and he looked at me, and I just knew he didn't respect me. (laughs) I could... So, yeah, projects are always perilous. We have something, I think, a little more on a serious note. This is uh, something by about Sue Klebold and the truth about normal parents, which is also, as you noted, Ethan, written by Heather um, Haverleski. I don't know the cut. What is the cut, Ethan?
3: Uh, I don't either, uh, to be honest. I don't know if it's an opinion section of New York Magazine, um, but... But yeah, Heather Haverleski wrote this piece about uh, Sue Klebold who's the mother of Dylan Klebold who um was one of the shooters in the Columbine uh in the Columbine tragedy and yeah, I mean she she starts off the piece basically by saying that um like we are all Ready to read this book and trying to find the roots of what makes a bad mother, and and trying to fix places where we may uh, we may have similar parenting strategies and fix ourselves. But um, but then she does sort of, and you know, for better or worse, it does sort of feel like Avrelsky rakes her over the coals a little bit. And says that there's a lot of denial going on a lot of self-justification and blame shifting, um, but that when it comes down to it, this is us, you know, we, this is a normal mother and, and as much as we may try to evade all the ways that we, um, you know, screw up our children, it's, it's just, it's part of being a parent that you will screw up your children. Hit it, Sarah. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, this was. Uh, she's. She's. I heard an interview with Sue Klebold on Fresh Air, and I wanted to throttle her through the radio. Um, Tell us how you really I mean, feel. I know, right? I. I just. And so it was interesting to read this article and have it be a review of the book, and and the writer had a very similar uh, response to her. Um, because you know, a lot of the issues with her for me were. It's this narrative of my baby hasn't done anything wrong that she kind of parented with. And so I can quickly go to a place of judgment, except that I know as a parent that I can quickly do that. My baby hasn't done anything wrong, even at five years old. And also, you know, my heart just broke for her because, and I loved the writer's analysis of this because we parent in an age of endless information. I mean, it's constant. And so if we just know that our kids are okay and things are dealt with at school, I mean, there was that horrifying uh, realization in this piece about how she had um, been approached by the counselor or the teacher. I think it was the teacher because he'd written her son, Dylan, had written something terrifying and the counselor didn't wasn't really maybe notified in the way she should have been. And and Sue Klebold herself never read it. And it had something to do with fantasizing about school shootings. And, you know, it's like we are so inundated and busy. I mean, I read this and it had the same effect on me that a lot of the busyness stuff has, which is like, why don't we just like move to the country, cut off from civilization and like, you know, get our water from a well. So, which is, you know, not the answer, but. I, I love there was a thing about how this isn't this this isn't a book about um like raising a psychopath it's a book about modern parenting in some ways So yeah.
0: you know it's interesting that Frank Lake the great Frank Lake um in a section actually on depression and um acidiae, which is actually what the church fathers used to call like sloth but not just laziness but this like sense that you just don't have the will to to sort of be a a, a human being moving in the world and he talks about early developmental you know you know early developmental psychology and he says that when when children understand at the early stage that acceptance is a gift they understand they have unconditional access and a full relationship with the person who is the source of being and well-being is free the infant feels accepted in toto i.e with whatever doubts or destructiveness or libidinal fantasies it may own up to. Since to be accepted is to receive personal being, his very being itself is a gift. Because forgiveness is assured, the personality remains open. Now, he says that if early on you learn that acceptance isn't a gift, but it's a reward, only conditional access is granted. The bad side is felt to be rejected at one's bad self with it. Hence the unconscious denials splitting off and repression, all of which draw upon the limited resources of mental energy. No genuine sense of acceptance is possible. One's being is no longer in the person who is the source of being, but in oneself and one's own efforts. Since one has no love for, for the law that has, has, it has to be kept to gain acceptance, but only a sense of demand and obligation. The heart of the, of the matter morally is not filled. And so like, I think that what's interesting is that if the the kinds of parents that probably aren't able to give this solidarity and forgiveness so that the kid can actually be themselves warts and all are the people that probably are living the acceptance as a reward story. So then pass it on to their kid.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that, but I would say the other thing that she is dealing with that we're all dealing with who are parenting right now is this uh, this thing in the zeitgeist that our kids should all have cushy lives, that they shouldn't have to deal with conflict, that they shouldn't have to feel badly. But, you know, we're constantly rescuing them from feeling badly about themselves. And the writer said something like um, uh, her idea is that good parenting, even in retrospect, was preventing negative outcomes instead of focusing on imperfection and forgiveness. And, I mean, that's modern parenting in a nutshell, you know, like, our kids never do anything wrong. We always fly to their defense and uh, we want their lives to be easy.
0: It's a good thing on Good Friday that yeah. the divine parent didn't, didn't parent the eternal son in a way that was trying to protect him from dangerous influences and things that would sully his own perfection, but actually um, had a love that was shared between he and the son and the spirit that. It gives hope for the imperfect and the broken, like us. Right. Well, thank you, guys, for yet again, guys and gal. Mm. um, The Y'all, thank you, you all. all. (laughs) Gender-inclusive, second-person, plural. Thanks for being with me yet again, and I will talk with you all next week, and have a great, blessed, uh, holy weekend.
2: Thanks, Scott. Scott.
0: Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. Cast. As usual, all the content we reference can be found on our website, mbird.com. And we love mail and feedback, so if you want to send us some thoughts, uh, you can reach us at info at mbird.com. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. And we hope you have a blessed, holy weekend and a happy Easter.